If you have your Bibles this morning, we are in 1 Peter, chapter 5, looking at verses 12 through 14. If you'll notice, that's the very end of 1 Peter. Uh, this will be the final sermon that we have in the book of 1 Peter that we've been going through for the last couple months together. Uh, but we'll be rounding that out this morning in 1 Peter, chapter 5, looking at verses 12 through 14. And that should be on the screens behind me if you aren't able to find it in time. <clears throat> First Peter, first Peter chapter 5, starting verse 12, says this. By Silvanus, a faithful brother as I regard him, I have written briefly to you, exhorting and declaring that this is the true grace of God. Stand firm in it. She who is at Babylon, who is likewise chosen, sends you greetings, and so does Mark, my son. Greet one another with a kiss of love. Peace to all of you who are in Christ. Ending things sometimes can be difficult. It can be hard. When I get to the end of a phone call, I I never really know what to say. I'm one of those people that gets to the end, and I know it's supposed to end. I know the phone call has to end at some point. Eventually, I will not be on the phone, but I don't know what to do once I get to that point. There's probably something I think about Christians, maybe just people from the South. Maybe it's just my family specifically, but no one else that I'm ever on the phone with knows what to do either. We get there, and we both know the phone call's over. There's no more information. There's no more that we have to convey to each other. There's no more that we have to give to each other. We both are ready to be off the phone, but no one wants to just hang up, right? You've got to say some things before you get there. It's, well, all right, uh, I've got to get going. Or maybe my personal favorites, well, I'll let you go. The it's not me, it's you of phone hangups, wherever you get there. I'll let you go. I know you want to be off the phone, so we can stop at this point. I'll let you go. All right. Well, see you later. Okay, see ya. Love you. Love you too. Okay, bye. Goodbye. You say goodbye like eight times before you get to the end. The phone call has to end a dozen times before it's over. We don't know how to do it efficiently and politely. Sometimes you get to the end and then someone like restarts it back at the beginning. They go back to, okay, goodbye. Well, see you later. And then you have to go through all eight of them again. That's why I think aloha should be more widely accepted. It's hello, goodbye, one word, done. It's, there's no way they could possibly be impolite because you might just be saying hello again at the end of the phone call. I think that's how we should start ending things. It brings everything back around full circle to where we started. Peter this morning, I think, gives his aloha to the elect exiles. He started way back in chapter one with grace and peace. He's asking for those to be given to the people. And then here at the end of chapter 5, he comes back around and wants to give them, wants to impart to them grace and peace again. His ending, unlike mine, is short and efficient. But I think it actually gets a lot of information across to review his letter, to leave its readers with a reminder of his point in writing to them, why he's doing what he's doing, that he wants to give to them grace and peace through what God has given him to give to his people. So from his closing today, we'll be able to see two closing reminders of grace and peace. Two closing reminders of grace and peace from our text this morning. And the first closing reminder of grace and peace in 1 Peter is that the grace of God is found here. The grace of God is found in 1 Peter. It's on every page. It's on every verse when you read it. Look back at verse 12. By Silvanus... A faithful brother as I regard him, I have written briefly to you, exhorting and declaring that this is the true grace of God. 
Stand firm in it. When Peter began his letter to the elect exiles back in chapter 1, which we covered back in July, after he identified who he was writing to, his message began with this. He said, may grace and peace be multiplied to you. His whole focus throughout the letter and his whole goal in writing it to them was that they would have this grace and peace. That they would have it in abundance. They would be multiplied to them. And now he ends it in a similar way. He's bringing everything back around to where he began to say, yes, this is where you can find the grace and peace that I'm hoping to give to you. To say by Silvanus, that's just another way of writing the, the name Silas, who's the same guy who traveled with Paul in the second half of Acts. He was probably the one who had the letter in his hands when he got to these churches. He was probably the one delivering it to them. That's why it matters that Peter counts him as a faithful brother, that he's delivering the, red and the, the, the letter as it was written. He didn't change anything. He's probably there to help them interpret it, to be able to talk about some things that were confusing to them whenever they read it the first time. But by this Silas, Peter has written to them briefly. And whenever you think about it, this is a pretty brief letter, right? It's only five chapters. I, I preached it pretty thoroughly. I didn't skip anything. We were in every verse at one point. We talked about everything that was in here. And we spent a decent amount of time going through everything that was in here. And I was able to get through it all in about four or five months. It's not very long. But it's packed, right? There's a lot here. You know, if you were listening throughout this series, that, that there's a lot in every verse, that there's so much that Peter has written here. It's very efficient as he goes through it. He's given us a lot of grace and peace in his short letter. And I point that out to say that there's more to learn and see in Scripture than just what we see here. That he has written, but he's only written briefly to us in this letter. Peter's acknowledging from the beginning that this specific five chapters, this is brief. There's more to it than this. There's more to see, there's more to understand and hear than just what's included in this one letter. There's a whole Bible here to preach outside of just this one letter. And I think that's a helpful reminder, particularly to someone like me. I think I'm to a point in my life where I could get up here and talk for 30 to 40 minutes on pretty much whatever you give me from Scripture. I think you give me a week, I can talk for 30 minutes on whatever it is that you've hated me, a phrase, a single verse, whatever that is. I could zoom in on that and stay there for a while. I could take it one verse at a time, and I don't think I'm going to run out of stuff to say. But I need to remember that there's more here than just that particular verse, than just that particular book, that particular chapter. It's not my job to try to exhaust the one verse that I've been given every week so that you guys walk away going, man, I didn't think you'd be able to get four weeks out of that one verse. <laughs> that might be impressive, or it might just be excruciatingly boring for you. That's not my job. That's not what I'm here to do. I'm supposed to give you the whole counsel of God to preach the whole Bible to you and the time that I have with you. So maybe you're someone who wishes that I would have just stayed in the Gospels. I started in Mark when I got here. Maybe I just should have stayed Mark, Matthew, Luke, John, and then go back to the beginning. Maybe you wish I would just talk directly about Jesus and a story about him every week. But there's more to it than that. Maybe you just want me to stay in the New Testament. You say, we're Christians, we're not Jews, we don't need the Old Testament. We should only stay here in this New Testament book because we are a New Testament people. But there's more to it than that. We're a New Testament people with an Old Testament heritage. We're the new people of God who are closely tied to the old people of God. Maybe you wish I would have skipped these last few verses. Maybe you got here this morning, you looked at the text that was here and said, 
isn't that just like with love, Peter? Like, why do we have a whole week on just that one final piece here at the end? Maybe you wish that I wouldn't have done this this morning, but I think I've got to give you the whole counsel of God. I can't get bored before Peter ends his letter and move on to something else. I can't pick to stay in one book for forever, just like I can't pick to skip sections that aren't as exciting to me. And I think Peter shows us that that's okay. It's okay that I can just speak briefly to you about something here without feeling like I have to exhaust everything I've got every week because there's always going to be more that could be said. It's okay to be brief. I'm sure some of you wish I would take that to heart a little bit more often than I do. It's okay to be brief. I don't have to keep going for forever. But what Peter has written to the church, though brief, he says it's true. He says, this is the true grace of God. And by this, he means that which I have written to you, these five chapters I've given to you, this is where you can find the true grace of God delivered to you, his people. His letter, everything in it is God's true grace delivered to you through Silvanus, from Peter, inspired by the Holy Spirit. He's saying, if you're looking for what God would have for you, that you have found that in 1 Peter. I mean, Peter began his letter with a clear focus on what God has done for them in his grace, way back in 1 Peter chapter 1. He said, he called them in his foreknowledge to be sanctified in Christ through the Spirit, that he has now given them the new birth, the new life that you now live in Christ, that he is promising now to hold his people firm to the end through whatever trials they might be going through. He's saying that these people are now heading toward the salvation of their souls, Yeah, you're probably going to pass through some persecution and suffering to get there, but that the salvation of your souls is what God has planned for you on the other side of that. This plan, this was always the plan. The Old Testament, the former writings, everything was pointing toward this now. You now, God's people now, through Christ now. Peter's shown clearly the work of God in saving his people through the gospel all through chapter 1. And then in chapter 2, he showed them that what he has called them to is to be the new people of God. He says, since you're the people that all that other stuff was pointing to, all that Old Testament was culminating in and for, that Christ now is saving people like you and making you a new people together, a holy nation, a royal priesthood in Christ and for Christ. He encourages us, you may be strangers and aliens in the world. This place may not feel like home, but that's because it's not. You may be not at home here. You may be a stranger, a foreigner in a foreign land here, but you are welcome as a people in Christ. You say, no, 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 you're not the second-rate backup plan. You're not what I went with because the whole Israel thing didn't work out. This was always the plan from the beginning, when he started. That's what always was going to happen, that he was going to create a new and true Israel in us, his people. And he's saying that this, what God has done for us in saving us and calling us to be a new people, this is the true grace of God given to us. And he's called us and saved us. He's made us his church through Christ. He saved us from our sins and he's made us into something new together. We were in darkness, but he's called us into his marvelous light. We had not received mercy, but now we have received mercy. That's the grace of God that is dripping on every page of 1 Peter. He says, this, this story of who God is and what he's done for you, that's the true grace of God given to you. 
And now because we have received the finished work of Christ, because we've received God's grace, that has to impact how we live. That's how he moved in his letter from what God has done into now what we should do in light of what God has done. That we have to keep our conduct among the Gentiles, among the unbelievers, pure and honorable, so that they might have the same conversion that we have had. Pure and honorable conduct in the midst of a world gone crazy that wants to persecute us. That, for Peter, is what it looks like to be a person who is in Christ. And what that looks like, how it works out for you in your life, is for you to be subject to every human institution. To the emperor, as evil as he may, as he may be. To the governing authorities, as evil as they may be. It looks like servants being subject to their masters, even the evil ones. Because that's how we follow Christ's example, by the righteous suffering for the unrighteous. For us, it looks like wives being subject to their husbands, so that their husbands may be one to the Lord. And vice versa, it looks like husbands living with their wives in an understanding way and honoring them, loving them. Because of what God has done for us, this is how we should live as people of grace. And this kind of grace that we've received is something that we can stand firm in. Christ has already accomplished it. He's already done the work. God has saved us. The Spirit has called us. So this grace is all ours now. We are as firm in this grace as we could possibly be. Okay, JC, our two-year-old daughter, she can walk around now. She's, she's pretty firm on her feet. She's even getting to the point where she can run, kind of, like her version of running. It's a lot of movement, a lot of up and down, not a lot forward. We'll work on that one of these days, which will start propelling forward. She'll get her speed up. But she's able to be very firm on her feet until it comes to, like, climbing. She's brave enough now that if you help her, if you have her hands, if you will give her a little bit of a boost, she'll climb up wherever you've got, as long as it doesn't mean that it's all on her. As long as it doesn't mean that her arms have to go above her head to reach up and pull. As long as it's not all on her legs to push up to get to wherever she's going to go. Anytime she gets in that scenario where she's trying to climb something and gets to the point of going, oh no, this is higher than I thought it was. She's paralyzed by fear. She can't move. But even though she can't move, she's violently shaking. She's, she's done. She can't do anything in that point. She is as unsteady as she could possibly be whenever she's in that scenario. But if she's standing firmly on the ground, then none of that happens. I mean, she can do that all day. She can stand there all day. She can walk around all day. She can run around all day. She's firm. She's steady, secure. Not because she has changed, but because the ground on which she is has changed. That where she is positioned, where she stands now is so steady that it makes her steady and firm in it. Whereas wherever she's climbing, that's so unsteady that it makes her unsteady in it. And that's how we are in the grace of Christ. If it were up to us, if we had to do something special to be firm, then we would be shaky and rightfully so. But because the grace of Christ around us is so firm, because it is so steady, because we have been placed so securely in that steady place, that we now can stand firmly planted in his midst, in his presence. That's the true grace that Peter has told us about. That's the true grace that's the kind of thing that we can stake our lives on. It can take the full weight of everything that we might place on it. And there is nothing else around like that. 
If I were to stake my personal identity, my life on anything else, it wouldn't be able to take the weight that I'm trying to place on it. There's no way that I would be firm and in that place. I'd be unsteady because the ground on which I have placed everything that I have, everything that I am, is also unsteady. When I was in high school and tried to place my standing on my sports ability, all it took was one broken bone, not even like a big one, like a little thumb, and all that went out the window. None of that mattered anymore. When I've placed my identity in my smarts and my intelligence, all it takes is me saying one boneheaded thing, and then all of that buildup that I've had in my head of how smart I am is clearly shown to be incorrect because I said something that stupid. All it takes is that one thing to, for all of it to come crashing down. Okay, I had a birthday this last week. If I were placing my identity on my youth, on my vitality, my energy, and everything that comes with that, then every single one of these gray hairs is a testament that that is something that is not going to be able to sustain the weight that I'm placing on it. I can't stand firm in myself, in my ability, in anything that I've done, anything that I will do or want to do. I can't stand firm on any of those things. But I can stand firm in the grace of God in Christ. And I can find that grace is on every page of Scripture. And Peter reminds us here at the end of his letter that we can certainly find that same grace in 1 Peter. But he also reminds us that the peace of God comes from the grace of God. That's the second closing reminder that Peter gives in these verses. The peace of God comes from the grace of God. Look at those final two verses. She who is at Babylon, who is likewise chosen, sends you greetings, and so does Mark, my son. Greet one another with a kiss of love. Peace to all of you who are in Christ. Peace can be had in all of our circumstances. The, the details of the people that Peter mentions here, I think, show us that peace can be had in all of our circumstances. When he says here, she who is at Babylon, who is likewise chosen, sends you greetings. The, the she that he refers to here in that verse is the church. He says, the Christian church in Babylon, who is likewise chosen, sends you greetings. The Christian church routinely in Scripture is given feminine pronouns because we are the bride to the groom that is Christ. So though these other people, this other church is in a different place, Peter says, no, 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 they're like you. Just like you were chosen, they are chosen. They're saved by the same grace through the same faith that the elect exiles receiving this letter are saved by. They're chosen in the same way for the same purposes to endure the same kinds of sufferings. And honestly, when we get into it, this church in Babylon likely had it worse off than the church that Peter was writing to. But they send their greetings all the same. They identify with and love these other believers, this other church, all the same. The church in Babylon who is like you, the church in Babylon who is with you, wants you to know that you're not alone. Similarly, Babylon here isn't literally the city of Babylon. It's a name that Peter gives for Rome, where he probably was when he wrote this letter, similar to what John does in the book of Revelation. He calls it Babylon because just as Babylon in the Old Testament was a great world power that oppressed the people of God, so Rome is and would be that in the current age when he was writing. So follow, me, follow with me here. Peter, by referring to the church in Rome under these terms, 
is reminding his readers, even at the end of the letter, of the suffering and persecution that they're already experiencing, of the suffering and persecution that's going to get worse for them, that they're going to see increase in their lives. He's saying that this is coming for you, but this church, the church of Babylon, is making it through these things. So that means that you can too. When he imparts peace to them at the end, he's saying that they can have peace even in the midst of persecution of Rome even in the midst of the persecution of its Caesars. They can have peace no matter the suffering that they endure. And he said that before, right? I mean, most of chapters 3 and 4 were there to emphasize that the Christian life, because it follows the way of Jesus, is a life of suffering. It's us being like Christ and therefore being persecuted by the world, its authorities, and its unbelievers. We aren't supposed to suffer because we did evil, But when we suffer for doing good as Christ did, then that's just one more way that we're like him. And all of this happens to the glory of God in Christ. When he gives us peace, that peace can happen. That peace can be received no matter the suffering that we experience. But the church, she who is at Rome, isn't the only one that Peter refers to here. There's someone else that he talks about. And also my son. And so does Mark, my son. Now, this Mark, again, isn't literally his son. It's his spiritual son. But he is a real, physical, an actual guy. And let me just highlight briefly the story of this Mark's life because I think it shows us something about the peace that Peter's talking about. This Mark he's talking about is John Mark. He's the one who wrote the Gospel of Mark, which I preached through the the first year that I was here, last year here at Pleasant Grove. But the first time that we get introduced to this Mark... I think, we're pretty sure, is actually in Mark 14, in his own gospel. There's a a weird story inserted there about a young man who was following Jesus when he was betrayed, and then he got scared and had to run away, leaving his very clothes behind him. He ran away naked. And that's how Mark's story begins for us, with him naked and afraid, having abandoned Jesus out of fear. The next time we hear about Mark is in Acts, when he went with Paul on his first missionary journey. But evidently, at some point, he bailed again. He abandoned Paul in his ministry. Then when Paul and Barnabas are going to start round two, when they're going to go on another missionary trip, Barnabas wants to take Mark, but Paul says, no, I'm not taking that guy. We tried this before. He left. He already abandoned us. We're not taking him. So now Paul and Barnabas split up over whether Mark gets to come or not. So Mark and Barnabas go one direction. Paul and Silvanus, Silas, go a different one. But eventually, evidently, their paths cross again, with Mark being closely associated with Peter and running into Paul often enough that Paul later in one of his letters says specifically that he wants Mark with him. He says, bring me Mark, because he is useful in the ministry to me. I have found him to be useful. I found him to be worth something here. Somewhere in that time, Mark hears Peter talking about everything that Jesus did, and he writes it all down. He gives us the gospel of Mark. Okay, so this Mark, this is the guy who also greets the church. And I mention that not just because it's interesting trivia, which I think it is, but I say that because look at Mark's life, naked and afraid, running, abandoning, trying to follow, but bailing at multiple opportunities. He wants to do what he's supposed to do, but he keeps just flaking out 
at every possible chance. He's the center of controversy. He's distrusted by the guy who wrote like half the New Testament. But eventually, finally, Mark is a faithful brother who's useful for ministry. Eventually, finally, he's a faithful brother worthy of writing down one of the books of the Bible that we have today. Eventually, finally, he's sending greetings to a church in desperate need of love and support because he is an example of a spiritual son. He's an example of one who looks like an apostle who's with him. If you're looking for peace in and from all circumstances, I think Mark is a great testament to that idea. At any point in Mark's life, you might have thought that his story was over. At any point in his life, you might have thought that he was the loser of the tale. That this Mark guy, he was never going to get it figured out. But eventually, slowly but surely, finally, by the grace of God in his life, he arrives at a place of peace from which he's able to extend peace. He's sending solidarity and greetings and support to a church that needs it because he himself has found all those things in Christ. I don't know what your circumstances are when you walked in today. I don't know if you've been going through persecution or suffering like she who is at Rome. I don't know if you have a story that looks like you just can't get it figured out like Mark. But regardless of your circumstances, the peace of God can be found. From the grace of God given to you, his peace is an additional gift that you receive that's founded on his grace. And if you're looking for those things, if you're looking for grace and peace in your own life, I think you can find them in 1 Peter. I think we have found them in 1 Peter. I think you can actually find that in all of Scripture, all the time. Peace can be had no matter what your circumstances may be. And when you have that kind of peace it eventually is going to lead to a certain amount of affection. Peter tells them to to greet one another with the kiss of love. Now, let me say, I think this is a cultural command. Uh, There wasn't anything lewd or sexual in this kind of greeting, but it was just how they said hello with affection. Think of it like a warm hug of uh, the church at Asia Minor. Uh, So I don't think we have to follow this today exactly. In fact, I would encourage you not to follow this today exactly. If after the service you come up and try to give me the kiss of love, I will give you the spin move of love and get out of your way. Uh, You approach me lips first, I reserve the right to approach you knuckles first. (laughs) But I think there's a certain amount of affection that we do and should have for each other. There is a good and right, warm way to greet one another in Christ because we experience the same grace, because we have the same peace. But this kind of warm affection, that's what Paul, that's what Peter has been encouraging the church to have for one another throughout the whole book, right? I mean, back in chapter 4, he said, above all, keep loving one another earnestly. He said to show hospitality toward one another. He said, elders, you have a job. You have to shepherd the flock as an example. Everyone else, you also have a job. Be subject to the elders. Everyone should deal with everyone else humbly. As you walk together toward the day in which you will be exalted together. When you have the grace of God and share that amongst yourselves, the peace of God, that's likely to follow. It's not just a vertical peace between you and God. It results in also a horizontal peace between you and the people around you. 
between you and your fellow church members. When you have peace together, you're able to find the affection and love for one another that you should have. Warmly greeting one another in Christ, that becomes natural when you approach your fellow believer because there's no enmity here. There's no division here. They're with you in this. They're partaking of the same grace that you are. But let me emphasize how Peter ends his letter. He does say peace to all of you. But specifically, he says, peace to all of you who are in Christ. That's why I say that the peace of God comes from the grace of God. You see, without the grace of God toward you, without Christ's gospel work of salvation on your behalf, without your response to that gospel with repentance and faith, so that then Christ's work is applied to you and in your life, without that grace through his gospel given to you, There is no peace, no grace, no peace. Without all that, you're not in Christ. So that means the the peace that Peter here is talking about is not for you. It's not descriptive of who you are or where you're at. It's available, it's there, but not in your current state, not in how and who you currently are. This peace of God is for those who are in Christ. It may not describe you now, but it could. I mean, the the grace of God, the grace of Christ, it is free for the taking to you. It's free to all who repent and believe. It could be free to you today. It's the true grace of God. It's something you can stand firm in. It costs Christ his human life, but to you, the one who is already dead in your sin, it is given to you freely without price, without charge. How you receive it now is simply as grace through faith, without you earning any of it at all. And once you've received it, when you've received it, that's when the peace of God comes for you that founded on the work of Christ applied to you, his gospel given to you, now you have grace and peace in and through you. Peter began his letter praying that grace and peace would be multiplied to its readers. And it's my prayer that that same thing happens to you today. May grace, which saves you, which sustains you, which allows you to stand firm, be multiplied to you. And based on your receiving that grace, may you also receive his peace. No matter what your circumstances may be coming in, that you have his peace as you go through them. No matter what suffering and pain and persecution you may endure, you know that you have his peace. Because though you are humble now, there is a day in which you will be exalted with him in heaven. May the grace that Peter tells us about in this book, in his book, save each and every one of you through repentance and faith today. And may the peace of God, which comes through that grace, be given to all of you who are in Christ today. Let's pray. God, thank you for this day. Thank you for all that you've done for us, Lord. Thank you for the gift of your grace, which results in your peace. Thank you for giving this to us, that you 
saved Peter, that you used him to write this, that you spoke through him as he wrote this, that you faithfully preserved this for us to read and hear today, that we now today as your people can receive this grace, can know this peace, and can stand firm in it. Thank you for holding us fast in this grace and peace. You've given us so much more than we deserve. And you've withheld from us so much of what we do deserve. In this week, in this time of thanksgiving, help for us to remember the primary thing which we should be thankful for. The gospel of Jesus Christ, his sacrifice in our place, and the gift of faith that you've given to your people. Help for us to be people who are marked by this grace and peace. That when it is multiplied to us, that we spread it, that we share it. That when people come into contact with us, they leave with a little bit of our grace and peace with them. We love you and we thank you. In Jesus' name.